Hi, everybody. So I wanted to take a moment to talk about Liberty Dad. I also happen to call him a lightweight, okay? And I have said that, so I would like to take that back. He's really not that much of a lightweight. It is not enough to talk about liberty. One must believe in it. It is not enough to believe in liberty. One must work at it. It is not enough to work at liberty. One must convince others likewise. Reimagining how we do politics. Welcome to Liberty Dad. Welcome to episode 31 of Liberty Dad Podcast, where we reimagine how we do politics by believing, working, and convincing others to work at liberty. I'm your host, D.L., and today's episode is The Experience of Being Experienced. This episode is part two of my series on race-related matters. Don't worry if you didn't listen to the last, as each episode is independent of the other. However, to get the fuller context, I definitely recommend listening to them all. In episode 29, I discuss what it means to hear the voice of others. This week, I discuss the experience of being experienced. What does that mean, you ask? Let's dive right in. When we discuss politics, what can we learn from a former FBI hostage negotiator and an internationally known psychologist? Tell you what. I'm going to give you a few moments to think of an answer. I'll be right back. Okay, do you have an answer? I know I do. But before we get into the answer... Let me give you a quick recap of episode 29 and 30, because they kind of help lay a foundation for this episode. In episode 29, Hearing the Voice of the Unheard, I played a 10-minute clip of Dr. Martin Luther King's The Other America speech. At specific moments, I stopped and told you what I heard. I didn't spend any time telling you what I thought you should have gotten from it, just what I heard. During moments where some history was necessary, I did tell you what happened, but otherwise, it really was one big episode of me saying, so what I heard Dr. King say was, the purpose was to demonstrate that we listen too little while engaging others. I wanted you to hear how it sounds when someone just tells you what they think they heard. Maybe I got it correct. Maybe I got it wrong. Unfortunately, Dr. King is not here to confirm my understanding of his words. But that wasn't really the point either. Imagine if you had said those words and someone who heard them responded like I did. I hope you would feel they were making a good faith attempt to hear what you had to say, even if they got it wrong. On Wednesday's Midweek Moment, Episode 30, I discussed... Being mindful of your expectations. Much of our anger at a situation or a person is a result of an expectation for a different outcome. Being mindful means evaluating whether or not that expectation was reasonable and then adjusting as needed. At the beginning of episode 29, here's what I had to say. To address the Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter issue, we need to go beyond those words and in fact, ignore those words altogether because the root of the divide is much deeper. 
Ignoring the divide between the words Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter kind of sidesteps the issue. But it was the purpose. The goal of that episode was to communicate listening to others by example. But I did sneak in something else. A little bit of curiosity. Dr. King gave that speech in 1967, 14 years before I was even able to read. Because I was unfamiliar with things like the Watts riots or the Fair Housing Bill that he mentioned in his speech, I had to look them up. This is equivalent to asking someone for more information in order to better understand the point they are trying to make. We're going to look at the Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter dispute. And our discussion today will apply to those differences. And it has the benefit of not being limited to matters of race. At the beginning of this episode, I asked you, what could we learn from an internationally known psychologist and a former FBI hostage negotiator? I want to read you a passage from the book, Social Intelligence by Daniel Goldman. He's discussing rapport in the chapter titled, Recipe for Rapport. Here's what he says. Rapport feels good, generating the harmonious glow of being simpatico, a sense of friendliness where each person feels the other's warmth, understanding, and genuineness. These mutual feelings of liking strengthen the bonds between them, no matter how temporary. That special connection always entails three elements. Mutual attention, shared positive feeling, and a well-coordinated nonverbal duet. As these three arise in tandem, we catalyze rapport. Shared attention is the first essential ingredient. As two people attend to what the other says and does, they generate a sense of mutual interest, a joint focus that amounts to perceptual glue. Such two-way attention spurs shared feelings. One indicator of rapport is mutual empathy. Both partners experience being experienced. Okay, that's a lot and a little bit deep. But feel free to go back and re-listen if you need. For right now, in this next part, I want you to take a moment and pause this episode. And when you do, I want you to think about a memorable moment you've had with another person. Maybe it's a significant other, a sibling, parent, a friend, or whomever. But take a moment to relive that experience. Go ahead and pause. I imagine you probably thought of more than one. I thought of two. The first one is, Liberty Wife and I joke about our first date, which was an evening where we met for dinner, then a movie, and then finally a wine tasting at her friend's house. At the time, we weren't actually dating. But since then, I have declared it a retroactive date. Initially, I wasn't planning to go to the wine tasting, but because we saw Paranormal Activity 2 and horror films spook me, I changed my mind right after. It turns out the wine tasting is the memorable part of the evening relevant to this episode. Because this was like 10 years ago, only two things stick out from that event. A Riesling in a blue bottle changed my perspective of wine. And... We did a lot of snickering that night. I didn't know anyone other than my now wife, and she was friends with at least the hostess. As we laughed and giggled and snickered between ourselves throughout the evening, we were both 
having the experience of being experienced. Contrast that now with my second memorable experience, which is vastly different. Before I moved out on my own, sometime around the age of 20 or 21, my mother and I would stay up late watching television shows. We frequently engaged in deep conversation about lives, politics, religion, and many other topics. Sometimes we agreed, sometimes not. But we always enjoyed our conversations and left feeling positive about having had them. I mention these two experiences because both are examples of the experience of being experienced. And yet, they illustrate being experienced in two entirely different ways. The wine tasting was more temporary. Our shared sense of being created rapport in the moment, based on what was happening in the moment. Late night talks with my mother were more long-term and recurring. The wine tasting might be remembered as that one time, while the late night talks would be more remembered as a fond memory. Both are two people building rapport through that mutual attention, shared positive feeling, and a well-coordinated nonverbal duet. Take those thoughts and consider the last exchange between two people regarding all lives matter and black lives matter. Don't worry if you're having trouble thinking of one that might fit this particular conversation. I grabbed one from Twitter, and it didn't take much effort to find. It starts with a tweet that includes a video with a man and a whiteboard. In the video, the man is doing the math between how many white people were killed by cops and how many black people were killed by cops, and then comparing that against the demographic representation. The numbers and his conclusion, they're not really relevant here for this conversation, but here's the tweet and here's what was posted with that video. Quick tutorial on why all lives matter means crap until black lives matter. You're welcome. A follow-up comment then says, You lost so many people when you introduced math. They don't understand percentages. Just that one number is higher than another. Nice job, though. And then here's the rest of the exchange. This is a false equivalence. This guy's math is based on general population, not people interacting with police. Do some calculation based on interactions with police. Blacks commit more crime, by the way. And you will find cops kill more whites interacting with them than blacks. Black people commit more crime? So you think black people are inherently more criminal? Just wanted to make sure I heard that right. Yes, more crime, no, not more criminal. Environment is probably to blame. Here are the official numbers. Blacks are 13% of the population, yet commit 40% of all homicides, one-third of all violent rapes, and 50% of all violent crime. But you're suggesting that black people commit more crime in an attempt to justify the higher number of black-directed killings. Why else do you think so many black police brutality victims have become household names? For your amusement? Just correcting the logic here, the higher percentage of crime rate for blacks is an important factor in the equation. I think they become household names because people got emotional and stopped thinking logically. Many of the victims were a direct threat to the officers' lives. It's tempting to want to jump in and correct someone based on whatever perspective or information you feel they are missing. But ask yourself this. Do any of those responses suggest even remotely being experienced? I'd say not at all. But you might say, come on, DL. It was a simple exchange between two people, and it wasn't even nasty. Just two people disagreeing. 
What I fear happened is that both people walked away from that conversation with no better understanding of the other's position or why they feel so drawn to it. No rapport was created, and consequently, no ground was gained for either side. And I assume that same outcome applies to the various people on the internet encountering that exchange and just reading through, but themselves not chiming in. My mother passed away in 2016 of recurring breast cancer that metastasized in her bones. I held very conservative views, as did she, in my early 20s. She maintained those views while I grew out of them and into more libertarian views over roughly the last decade. We would frequently talk about these differences, either on the phone or when I went to visit. Out of those exchanges, I developed what I call the mother test. Even though mother held firm to her conservative views, I relished the moments when she would say something like, well, that's a fair point. It didn't mean that she changed her views, but it was a signal that she heard what I was trying to communicate. And I think it was a signal that we both were experiencing being experienced. Think of that previous Twitter exchange. Now think of how many exchanges you've seen with Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter. How many do you recall came across as one or both participants really hearing the other's perspective? Or, like the example exchange, did they merely just sound like a stalemate? I don't personally have a problem with the All Lives Matter crowd, nor the phrase. When someone says it, I generally believe they mean well and honestly believe that all lives really do matter. But as someone who believes there is a lot of value in the Black Lives Matter phrase and the movement, when someone responds with all lives matter, it is a signal to me that I'm not being experienced. And it doesn't matter how earnest and genuine they may feel they are being with their rewording. Recall this statement from Social Intelligence that I quoted earlier. As two people attend to what the other says and does, they generate a sense of mutual interest, a joint focus that amounts to perceptual glue. Correcting someone who you believe is using the wrong word, all or black, to describe which lives matter is not generating a sense of mutual interest. It does not attend to what the other says. It does not leave that person feeling they've been experienced. This is the problem with the dispute between Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter, and it's equally shared by all parties. The same challenge exists with other commentary, such as telling someone that they are speaking from white privilege or saying people should just follow police orders. It speaks at someone instead of engaging with them. So what is the solution? Well, that's where our hostage negotiator comes into play. Chris Voss was a former FBI hostage negotiator, and he wrote the book, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. He has a chapter titled, Be a Mirror, where he offers negotiating tips that I think fit very well with our everyday conversations. And if you're skeptical of learning lessons from hostage negotiation, just to engage on the internet or with friends or family, consider this excerpt from Voss's book. Negotiation serves two distinct vital life functions, information gathering and behavior influencing. 
and includes almost in any interaction where each party wants something from the other side. Negotiation, as you'll learn here, is nothing more than communicating with results. Observing a myriad of conversations and the current outbreaks of violence across the United States, we could use some different results. Let's walk through Voss's six key lessons from the Be a Mirror chapter, and we'll see how they might be valuable in getting those different results. If we choose a single word to represent each of those key lessons, we get prepare, open, discover, others, slow, and smile. Let's get into them. Number one, prepare. Quote, a good negotiator prepares going in to be ready for possible surprises. End quote. When you see a comment on Facebook, Twitter, or elsewhere, you should always prepare to be surprised. In fact, you should always expect to be surprised. That doesn't mean that you'll agree. It just means you anticipate learning something you didn't know about the person or their view. Number two, open. Quote, don't commit to an assumption. Instead, view them as hypotheses and use the negotiation to test them rigorously. End quote. Too often, we assume we know everything we need to know about the person or their position. We even have a common phrase that we've seen repeated. This tells me everything I need to know about the person. It's necessary to remain open so that we might realize when our assumptions are wrong. We might find our assumptions were correct or incorrect, and we might find they are one or the other for reasons we didn't realize. Number three, discover. Quote, negotiation is not an act of battle. It's a process of discovery. The goal is to uncover as much information as possible. End quote. The more information you uncover, the more information you have to speak to the person. But more importantly, the more they feel they've actually been heard. Remember, Daniel Goleman's comment in Social Intelligence about two people attending to what the other says and does? Everyone wants to be heard, and everyone wants to feel their opinion has value. While the process of discovery shouldn't be a series of 20 questions, it should make the other person feel like they are being experienced while, at the same time, you are learning about more about who they are and why. 4. Others Quote, To quiet the voices in your head, make your soul and all-encompassing focus the other person and what they have to say. End quote. Ever seen that funny saying that says, I have ADD, I'm not listening, I'm waiting for my turn to speak? Yeah, well, unfortunately, too many of us hear something that we don't like and immediately start thinking about a response. So too many of us actually do that on a daily basis in regular life. The American novelist Truman Capote, he liked to claim that he had over 90% memory recall of conversations. It's arguable whether or not his memory recall was actually that high, but he was known to be really fascinated by those he engaged with. So even if it wasn't 90%, it was likely much higher than most of us simply because his focus was on those who he spoke to and what they had to say. Number five, slow. Quote, slow it down. If we're too much in a hurry, people can feel as if they're not being heard. 
you risk undermining the rapport and trust you've built. End quote. Have you ever heard the saying, people don't remember what you say, they remember how you made them feel? Well, it's true, and rushing the conversation leaves others feeling unheard. And when someone doesn't feel heard, it really doesn't matter what great point we feel we've made. I've accepted that rarely will someone's mind be changed in any single conversation. I like to think in terms of preparing for tomorrow's conversation by how I conduct it today. If I am to convince a person of a new idea, and it takes multiple conversations to get there, then I need to consider that each conversation builds on the last and is equally important. If I rush the first one, the person I'm speaking with may not give me the option to get to the conversation where they are finally convinced. And number six, smile. Quote, put a smile on your face. When people are in a positive frame of mind, they think more quickly and are more likely to collaborate and problem solve instead of fight and resist. End quote. Think of those who have influenced you the most. How do you perceive their personalities? I'll bet dollars to low-carb donuts, and mind you, that is such a thing, that you find them pleasant. There's always exceptions, but more often than not, we are drawn to those who aren't jerks. And it may be hard to do. Some ideas are so distasteful that we might have serious trouble approaching the people we hold with even the slightest pleasantness. But remember, you are engaging in a process of discovery, and you should be looking for surprises that you are certain to find. And that is how we create the experience of being experienced. We think of each interaction as an opportunity to build rapport and then influence people over time. We prepare ourselves to be surprised while remaining open to what we think we know, and we treat the engagement as a process of discovery and remember to focus on others, then slow down our desire to get to the end and remember to smile to keep ourselves in a positive frame of mind. Whether you support Black Lives Matter or All Lives Matter, remember these lessons the next time someone responds with the opposite. If someone asserts something you vehemently oppose, recall these lessons. Change your approach from telling to learning. It doesn't mean you won't make any assertions along the way because it's not a game of just 20 questions. The goal is to ensure the other person feels experienced. And it's not about being nice. In fact, I'd say it's not about being nice at all. It's about being productive. Or, as Voss states, communication with results. I hope you found this episode's topic insightful. If you haven't heard episode 29 and 30, I encourage you to give them a listen. But for now, it's time for a bill review. But I know I'll be a law someday, at least I hope and pray that I will. But today I am still just a bill. I am not in any way a lawyer. What follows is not in any way legal advice and is not intended to speak in any authority on legal matters. I am only acting in the capacity of a general citizen with the ability to read and interpret a concatenation of words and render an opinion. This week's bill review is of Senate Bill 3955, and it is so short that I can actually read it to you right here and then offer a few thoughts. 
You may have heard that Senator Rand Paul was leaving the Republican National Convention early Friday morning when he and his wife were surrounded by protesters. There are multiple videos showing the protesters yelling and screaming for him to, quote, say her name. This was a reference to Breonna Taylor, the emergency medical technician shot and killed during a no-knock raid by the Louisville Metro Police Department back in March. Senator Paul authored this bill the following June. Here is the bill, and then a few thoughts that follow. A. Bill. To prohibit no-knock warrants, and for other purposes. Be it enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress Assembled. Section 1. Short Title. This act may be cited as the Justice for Breonna Taylor Act. Section 2. Prohibition on No-Knock Warrants. A. Federal Prohibition. Notwithstanding any other provision of law, a federal law enforcement officer may not execute a warrant until after the officer provides notice of his or her authority and purpose. B. State and local law enforcement agencies. Beginning in the first fiscal year beginning after the date of enactment of this act and each fiscal year thereafter, a state or local law enforcement agency that receives funds from the Department of Justice during the fiscal year may not execute a warrant that does not require the law enforcement officer serving the warrant to provide notice of his or her authority and purpose before forcibly entering a premises. That's it. The bill is clear and to the point. It outright prohibits federal law enforcement from executing a warrant until they announce themselves and their intent. And it likewise prohibits state and local law enforcement agencies from doing so if they receive funds, which I believe pretty much all of them do. This sort of limitation placed on states is common because a state has its own authority. But the federal government kind of gets around that by tying such requirements to federal funding. Checking congress.gov's website, it shows this bill was introduced by Senator Paul and currently only has two co-sponsors, Senator Mike Braun of Indiana and Senator Steve Daines of Montana. All three are Republicans. I encourage you to call your state senators and insist they add their name as a co-sponsor to this bill. Doing so doesn't guarantee it will pass the Senate, but adds a level of commitment to voting in favor of this bill. As you heard, this bill has literally nothing else added. No-knock raids too frequently target the wrong person. They fail to secure the illegal items the police were even looking for, and they maim or kill people unnecessarily. As the nation debates heavily about the nature of those killed recently in protests and riots, at a minimum, we should all find common ground in the idea that no person should ever be killed in their home by police while not even committing a crime. That's all for today. Be sure to check out other episodes at LibertyDad.com. If you'd like to connect, find me on Facebook at LibertyDad, all one word, Twitter at LibertyDadPod, or send an email to LibertyDadPodcast at gmail.com. I'm always interested in receiving feedback. And remember, if you are a champion of liberty, your business is people, and your product is liberty. Have a great week. Catch you next time. And I'm out.